Well, thank you very much, Elaine, for being a part of this podcast series, looking at creative ways and of approaching higher education spaces. It's good to have you here and I hope we get some nice insights. Uh, would it be okay if you introduce yourself and told told us about some of the projects you've worked on in the past and, and what you enjoy about the work you do? Yeah, I'm Dr Elaine Davy. I'm Vice Chair of the Welsh Historic Gardens Trust. I'm a trustee of Rupera Castle Trust. Castle Preservation Trust and so on. Loads, actually, I'm involved in, I think, about 14 different heritage projects. I've sort of come at this in a, um, a less than conventional route to being in this position to discuss heritage, because I'm of an age where, you know, if you were at school, unless you were very wealthy, you were expected only to be a secretary nurse or a teacher now there's nothing wrong with those but for me I would like to have done nuclear physics or engineering and you know that was impossible so I've worked my way up backwards partly to sort of overcome these various constraints for women that were about in the 60s I originally did a sort of building surveying course starting at what was Landaff Technical College at the time is now the University South Wales and then eventually ended up in Bristol at what is now University West of England uh, and worked in the field of architecture then for quite a few years but always at the back of my mind I loved the history of architecture and particularly archaeology and art history so uh, when I had my children because as ever with the world of building um, that whole sector is uh, always on a roller coaster in the 80s it declined and so I thought right now's my chance I can do an open university degree of art history and architectural history then after that there was still no work to be had and of course my children made it filled my life in many respects but um and I started to get involved in voluntary works and the Victorian Society notably nobbled me in the um, the Reform Club of all places, rather a wonderful architectural space to take on casework for them. And this was in the 90s because of my background in building and because of my uh, awareness of architectural history. And from then on, I then got involved became more and more of a heritage activist really and got involved in more and more campaigns and projects and then eventually was asked to do a PhD with the School of Planning and I chose to do PhD on the practice that I'd worked in, Percy Thomas practice, because I could see by 2004 they'd um, had funding crisis with the PFI projects, public funded initiatives and that they were going to disappear after 93 years of very creditable history and actually having designed lots of buildings in Wales. And I felt that they'd contributed more to the building of Wales as a modern urban nation than any other architectural practice, hence my PhD. And that was great fun, which takes me on to the first question, the most memorable space from my time in university and I'm choosing the time not with the OU or in the college but the time of doing the PhD and the memorable space is the committee room in the Glamorgan building 
with in those days the school of planning now the school of geography and planning could hold events public um, innovation and engagement events and therefore they'd get a room full of people of all types all ages all different levels of experience different professions that had an interest in whatever the subject was a fascinating space because it's huge it's edwardian it has the most extraordinary plasterwork on the ceilings that you can study whenever the speaker may get a bit complex or boring and outside is a balcony which relates to the period of what the building was originally meant for not as a university space but as a it was part of the county mid glamorgan county hall and the yard beyond that balcony was where the police used to drill so you know that all used to fascinate me really and plus the fact that building sits within a very constructed area of cardiff to promote cardiff as an important town important city it became and then capital city all based on the wealth made in the area from the coal exports so that was a fabulous place to meet um, everybody was made to feel welcome you know made to feel that you were amongst equals it was an interesting space and the variety of speakers and the topics they covered were phenomenal so that for me is probably the most memorable space yes thank you very much elaine and your journey through like you explained there through the education system and, and making your way into an area of your interest is really inspiring i think to many people listening that yes. space as well sounds um very very interesting actually it's fascinating space actually yeah i think uh, and i i you know i mean not really i think about wherever anybody is in terms of education it has to be inspiring sure mm -hmm. what what then would you say has changed the most since your time there studying What's changed the most since studying there? I mean, I've not been back recently because, of course, nobody can go anywhere anymore. But um, from when I first started my educational career, I think it's almost from my early days, my memories of education are almost Dickensian, really. They were very much grad grind. You learned by rote, not by somebody inspiring you. And I suppose at an early age, I was aware that that wasn't right. And um, I was passionate to learn about the world. And I can remember a sort of apocryphal moment as a child when I thought, I'm only going to make sense of the world if I can learn about all of its geography and all of its history. And I was quite young thinking that. And I think when I think back, I think, how on earth did I work that one out for myself? But I do need, and I think a lot of people are probably the same in terms of education, they need to have more of the bits of the jigsaw before they can make sense of the picture the whole picture so you know because there's too many questions if you just accept parts of the jigsaw it's not going to tie up really and i think that's changed enormously that people do try to make when they're educating people they try to make the um, subject more relevant and contextualize it hopefully but certainly in terms of university, I think from 
the expansion of universities in the 60s after the Robbins report and um, more recent developments in terms of the use of technology. Obviously, it's become a much more user-friendly place, let's say, you know, less set up for the benefit of um, just pushing facts into people in that grindian way of Dickens and you know and inspiring people to feel passionate about their subject and learn about the connections because often I mean part of what I loved about the PhD was we they used to put us into these groups on away days of half a dozen disconnected disciplines and make you come up you had to come up with the idea for a PhD that fitted all and it was a lovely way of thinking things through laterally and coming up with new solutions to problems or hopefully ways of getting to the new solutions. And I think that's really important, those interconnecting ideas and cross-lateral ideas. Very important across disciplines as well mm-hmm. and coming together to discuss new ideas for innovation. Yeah, because... Um, who knows, you know, who, who's going to be the next Einstein? Who's going to be the one that thinks things um, left field, as it were, and comes up with a, a solution which is really meaningful for the world? And it could be through that exchange of ideas across disciplines. I think that's really important. On the architecture side of things and your expertise, you mentioned earlier and yeah. your interest <laughs> in the history of architecture. Can I ask... How did the first architects measure a space and, <laughs> and, and what is important to measure now, do you think, uh, when when designing spaces? How would you define the first architect? I mean, from my point of view, with my sort of knowledge of um, archaeology as well, I would go right back to Gobekli Tepe, which they claim to be the world's first temple in southeastern Turkey which is 6,000 years older than Stonehenge. Somehow or other, these hunter-gatherers got together and it would have been an enormous task. But they had the skills to make that space. When they measured it with reference to the stars, the movement of the sun and shadows, whether they used, I mean, I know in Egyptian times, they used parts of the body like we still use the term, a horse will be so many hands high. And we still use, you know, not so many now, but some of my generation still use feet and inches. A foot was a foot, you know, a standard man's foot and chains and rods and all those old terms. So they must have used some form of hemp, string, get something like that to space things. Of course, a circle is very easy to subscribe, you know, a stick and whatever length of rope or whatever. You could form a circle very easily. But then you go through all those various temples. And I think temple building is really important in terms of architecture because that's all that's left because they were meant to be ritual spaces and they were obviously hugely significant in whatever way. To the people that made them and then of course the tombs that followed in Egypt so they've lasted and places like Stonehenge have lasted but also there are still some houses in parts of Scotland that are the same age as Stonehenge stone houses bit bit like Flintstones you know so um, those are probably the first architects but then 
as the knowledge grows on uh, what materials can be used, uh, the, ex the limits that the materials can take in, in certain building uses and functions, as that grows, then they codify all of this and a sort of form of engineering and mathematics will come out. And then you get to the glorious Greek temples like at Pistum in Italy and then, the, you know, ultimately the Parthenon and things. Those will have been measured in with measured sticks and things. And probably like the great medieval cathedrals of France and Britain, there would have been an element of trial and error in the making of those where they would have pushed the materials and the design to the limits, realised that would fail and then they would make that mistake again. And that would have been the process of learning. And then eventually you've got this codified architecture through that process. And I suppose the first one probably would be described as an architect is Vitruvius, who is a Roman writer who actually explains all these theories about temple building. And then the next major one would be Palladio, really, with his book, De Architectura, in the Renaissance, where he wrote down all those ideas about the dimensions of columns, which were related to perspective and the human form and obviously some sort of ritual form as well. And the various orders, Doric, Corinthian, Ionic and that. So, you know, it depends how you define architect, whether you go right back to the early builders or the more codified builders from the Renaissance on. I like hearing about the history of it all and how it's evolved from the first use of, of using our own bodies to measure spaces and and whether that, do you think, is that still an important element of design, do you think? And if not, do you think it needs to be? I think it should be. I, you know, I've always thought, I, you know, I get quite angry at sort of images of these star architects, as they're often called, with their huge models of thrusting great towers where the human scale has been lost. And that seems to be happening all over the world. And to a certain extent, I suppose it has to. Otherwise, you get urban sprawl unless we build up. But it becomes a different form of monument and diminishes the human. That just becomes, the human just becomes a sort of little ant in these models. And I think, you know, we've become detached from nature and this virus has proven that to lots of people that they need to reconnect with nature and for their own well-being and their mental health and i think some of these buildings make that happen you know you live in an artificial environment within uh you know the connection with the outside world is just lost because of the scale of the buildings, because of the way they're constructed, because a lot of the materials aren't sort of that natural, really. Um, I think we do need to be careful that that is factored into design. How might then we go about creating learning spaces now, which help to give that space a sense of meaning for the students and staff that, that belong to it? It's tricky, really, to think about how you can have students, I'm saying pre-COVID, whether it's going to be different post-COVID, I don't know. 
But traditionally, students have to move about the campus and they go from one sterile space to another. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best way that, to inspire kids. I'm not advocating they go back to what happens in primary school, where the walls are covered with lovely pictures and things to inspire people. But it would help enormously. You know, it's not that simplistic, but I think there needs to be much more thought about the way we move about spaces and how spaces are created. Now, the potential of the geometries are, are quite interesting because now do we need that sort of enclosed space when connections are mostly digital now anyway? And in the past, there's always been a huge amount of symbolism attached to university spaces. If you think about the great ancient universities like Oxbridge and some of the Italian ones like at Padua, yeah, they're encoded with a lot of symbolism about the importance, and of course it's right, importance of knowledge, importance of education. But I don't know that that's necessarily what we're looking for anymore, really. I'm not advocating they're knocked down because I'm also, you know, very a conservationist in that I think we can use these spaces more intelligently and to make them much more appealing rather than just a box where you move from one part to another. I think the, you know, when the question's later of how you bring in more of the outside world to the inside spaces is quite crucial to that, to make them less sterile, to make them more appealing and to make them more user friendly and help people connect back to nature and think about the global context of what they're doing, you know. Everything, every action has a sort of implication for resources. If we're going to address climate change, that has to be forefront of all considerations about making spaces, even digital, because we all know that, you know, taking masses of photographs of spaces is damaging to the world because somehow or other these are going to be stored and the energy for storing those pictures has an impact. So all of these things have to be considered. You know, there's a whole range of socio-cultural factors that have to be considered in creating these spaces. When you speak, spoke about the, uh, the history of architecture and the first architect, you mentioned about Gobekli Tepe and, and also the Egyptians and, and they all had that's and you even said the word ritual and a place that people gather together I suppose to to congregate and and share is that yeah. a space that you think is missing in society or in university spaces do we need to provide for that that coming together yeah and that's quite a tricky one actually because you know that presumes there's going to be a shared language you know, the people for people to interact satisfactorily, they have to understand how this space works and uh, what is expected of them in terms of connecting with everybody. You know, that's quite a dynamic process. That's quite a tricky one, I think. And there's also involved in that, there are also power relations come into that as well, thinking about it. Inevitably, that's a human factor, I suppose, that somebody might command that space in a way that's not appropriate to other people in the space. But nevertheless, I think gathering spaces are incredibly important and it's obviously some innate 
need in human beings to gather because going back all those thousands of years when people were just supposed to have been nomadic neolithic people somehow or other they did gather they did gather to move the stones from west wales to uh, wiltshire plain salisbury plain for stonehenge so you know there's lots of examples through the monuments of that need to gather exchange ideas meet a partner feast whatever it is it's a human need which mustn't be overlooked we have to do that you know if we become more isolated digitally through the means of the digital medium then that would be damaging because there has to be this this need fulfilled in people to gather and celebrate or form perform some sort of ritual but most important of all, of course, it's exchange of ideas. You know, this is how we progressed is in these gathering places where people have said, well, I happen to shoot that bison a certain way or whatever it was, or I've painted something on the wall or I built something a certain way. And, and then that spreads out the knowledge, you know, so that's hugely important, I think. And at the beginning as well, you introduced yourself as being involved in a new, in numerous projects involving heritage and maintaining culture in in our local spaces. How important is are, are the university spaces in in doing this, incorporating culture, history, and art in the space, which gives a sense of its location within a, a wider community? universities should play a key role in making people aware i mean there is there's a sort of there's a lot written about cancel culture at the moment and you know at the end of the day universities should be a place of discussion and free speech and exchange of ideas and addressing things that are often quite uncomfortable actually and that encourage otherwise how are you going to have a shared language how are you going to learn tolerance and understanding of other cultures unless you have that area that space where it feels that you can discuss things you can learn about other cultures and respect their ways their traditions and their way of building their way of dressing their way of speaking you know those sort of shared spaces where a shared language is learnt is really important. And I think universities particularly should be supporting any anywhere that that can happen. Going back to the meaning of spaces, there is, you know, that basic, the first principles of, like you said, to um, prescribe a circle is easy. A circular space, um, lots of the great ancient spaces were circular, although uh, thinking about the Parthenon, even though where democracy is supposed to be born, that wasn't. But if you think about some of the ancient tribes that built places for discussion, they were often round. And, and that sort of symbolism of the roundness, you know, with the dome of heaven above, and the circle which stands for the universe uh, with a portal into this space is almost a transcendent significance really of from the outside world to the inside world where you are with all of these other people that you're about to share uh, as that space with and share their their experience of life and their traditions and their backgrounds and everything 
So I think all of that, you know, that sort of connection with those symbolic spaces is fundamental to our going back again to that fundamental need for connection with different people. I mean, we've sort of become again a blaming uh, social media, I suppose, because people have been almost conditioned by social media to be binary about things they either like or dislike. And I know this is almost a cliche now, but I think that has to be broke. We have to break out of that. We have to start thinking less in terms of either or black and white, even though those sort of contrasts are important. We have to be much more embracing and more tolerant. And the universities need to lead the way for that tolerance. Otherwise, therein lies madness, I think, if we don't. You know, the world is in a perilous place and uh, it's very easy for things to escalate into dangerous situations. And the uh, universities must actually feel that it's their responsibility to teach more tolerant principles, more understanding and gathering in places where these things can be talked through. Discourse is all contextualizing it is all as well. Mm. Thank you, Elaine. And it's nice that we've we've gone on a full circle, really, with this conversation <laughs> as well, coming back to the measuring a space and how it's important to understand the measurements that we contain within us. And, mm. you know, I'm just thinking of the Da Vinci piece now of, yes, of the man. That, man, you know, yeah. I, that's a wonderful image. And of course, how he measured you know, the proportions from eyes to mouth and the hands and the arms. And, you know, there is something there. I mean, I, if you're um, a religious person, you'd say it was God given. But nevertheless, I mean, I'm a great believer. I was looking at the um, Tree of Life yesterday when to find out when we branched off from the octopus. <laughs> Uh, because that's currently um, our only other conscious being, as it were, and sort of like meeting an alien life form. And I thought, well, you know, that significance of how we've evolved to be most efficient in our um, shapes and everything is is really important. And of course, it's codified in architecture, really, and it should be, and it shouldn't be forgotten that there is that human element to everything we've done. You know how we've we've developed both internally and externally and how we've developed the spaces around us to you can sit comfortably in those spaces and live and work comfortably in those spaces together you know yeah. together yeah. and uh, it's natural really if you think about the fibonacci sequence yeah. and how that's encoded into so many things from a nautilus shelters you know, a daisy or something, you know, it's it's just phenomenal. I think that bringing everything back to that mathematical level, as Leonardo was trying to do, is quite extraordinary. And it does make you wonder about that way we've developed along these design principles. And, and I think architecture should actually pay homage to that. In that Fibonacci sequence, I wonder if it's in, in us, it starts at our heads or at our hearts and where we're focused on at the moment, if it, if it needs shifting a little bit further south. I wonder, concluding thoughts then, have, have you got a question, a specific question that you'd like to direct towards those 
those architects or those people involved in creating and managing spaces now to, to think about firstly when they're discussing these plans? I suppose when they go through the sort of cost benefit analysis of a certain design solution, you know, it all comes back to money and profit and things like that, which I know I'm not naive enough to think that that's not essential. But they also need, I think, to really consider the end use and, and how, you know, the well-being of the user. You know, how are they taking into account those sort of intangibles and how people are going to respond to the space? You know, are they so detached that it's about how it looks as almost as a piece of sculpture, you know, when it needs to be more about how it's used and how people respond to it? And also, I think now they need to think about practical things like the embedded costs of materials used which is, you know, again, when I come back to conservation, you know, we can't just demolish buildings because they're unfashionable. That's a terrible waste of resources. And that has to be considered, you know, it's not just how the user response is based, it has to be, is it the most efficient use of resources? Because we are in a climate crisis, we have to conserve what resources left on this little blue rock if we're gonna have a future for the human species, the others, lots of the others will survive, we may not, unless we're more careful. And I think that has to be a first, you know, that has to be start, they have to start thinking about those sort of things, really, whatever space they're creating, whatever building. And to complete the sentence, Elaine, and to complete the podcast, university oh. spaces should be. Let's think. Uh, I think they should be welcoming, they should be inclusive. I think crucially they should encourage curiosity, interest, passion, engagement and a desire to progress. They should try to connect subject matter to the real world so that you know it can be applied and contextualized so you're not you don't feel that what you're learning is useless it has to be something that can be used in the future and even if it doesn't seem relevant at the time it will be in the future and i think it also ought to be connected to local regional national global issues you know I know it's a big, I mean, that's a terrific ask, really, in terms of organising the the lectures and everything. But that just needs to be there. It shouldn't be, they shouldn't think in silos. I mean, I'm really, I'm a very big picture person. And I hate it when people think in silos and then miss the opportunity to actually progress in a more productive way because there is that disconnection between disciplines. So, you know, it's got to be thought of in terms of it's spatially, sort of geographically and temporally as well, so that you're thinking about the future and future impacts of what you're doing, as well as you know, what may suit one part of the world, it may not suit the other part of the world. So that's a big, that's a big one, I'm afraid, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, oh, that's yeah. in aspirational and in my ideal world. Aspiration is a great thing to to want uh, to have as a value, though, and and I'm really mm. inspired by this. Listening to your words and, and your interest there is is great, and I'm glad that you agreed to be a part of this. I'm going to end the recording there. Okay, thank you very much.